0: We have been talking about the, the whole, you know, in Acts 8, 9, 10, and, and actually a section of scripture there, uh, including several chapters, when persecution started in Jerusalem, instigated by Paul, then called Saul, at the time, the church scattered the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but here's, our, here's what we are investigating. In the demise of the church, in which Saul sought to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, what did God do? What did God do in his church? Did, did God just fall prey? Did his kingdom, his church simply fall prey to the attack of the enemy? Or did God have this amazing plan? And I think we came to this conclusion that there is nothing, if our hearts are surrendered to Jesus Christ, there is absolutely nothing more that the devil can do except to play into the very set purposes and plan of God. And that plan is good. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen, church? And so, you know, when Joseph was speaking to his brothers, there's a rain, Right? Okay, it came eight minutes early, according to my clock. Anyway, when, when Joseph was confronted by his brothers, his father had just died, right? And his brothers are wondering, what's going to happen to us now? Is, 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 is Joseph going to kill us? And Joseph, his heart is broken, and he says, you know, you intended to do evil to me, but see, God turned it around for good. See, that's where we're going with this. This is going to be the last uh, sermon in this series but we're going we're gonna to see something, I believe, that is truly phenomenal that I think will open our eyes to a greater understanding of what God wants to do in the midst of our circumstances, or circumstances that can honestly seem so hard and, and, and cause us to wonder, God, where are you in the midst of this? Let me open in prayer if I can do that. Father, we ask that your Spirit would be our teacher this morning, would open our eyes, give us ears to hear, what the Spirit of God is trying to say to the church. Would you do that, Father? And would you take your word and would you apply it to our lives? And I just pray throughout this sanctuary and those online, that as they hear the word of the Lord, that God, your spirit would speak to them very personally through your word. And open hearts and open minds to receive this truth and you show us, God, every single one of us, how we are to walk in that truth in Here's a question I've got for you. How many of you love to destroy things? You love to just, come on, raise your hand. Okay, a few more ladies than I anticipated, but okay, okay, you love to destroy things. You know, I grew up as a kid, I loved to destroy things. I did. You know, I I didn't have the privilege because my parents wouldn't let me, but a neighbor down the road did this. I just heard about it. Kids, close your ears right now. But they would set up their Green Army men. Guys, you know what Green Army men are? Yeah, okay, I see not, heads nodding. And he would put firecrackers on some of them. And Yeah, well, anyway, uh, he would just love to destroy things. There's something in guys, I think, honestly, and some ladies, I guess we like to destroy things, but we also like to build things, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. I can remember one, one particular time. I was, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, ten years old, and we got to destroy something. It was so cool. My dad got us these big old sledgehammers, right? You know, with the head of metal about this big. And some of us... He didn't quite trust so much, like me, as a little kid of eight, nine, or ten. And so he gave me just this little, it kind of looked like maybe Thor's hammer, I don't know. But uh, it had a a good-sized head. It wasn't just a normal hammer. And we got to destroy the dividing wall between our kitchen and our dining room. And both of them were quite small. But with the wall removed, it looked awesome. Very open. We ran into a problem, though, because my dad did not anticipate electrical wires coming down a certain place, and we crashed into that, and he said, whoa, Michael, step back, and he had to examine it, and sure enough, the wire came down and went over this way, and he could not figure why they did it this way, but they did. But we, we got to destroy that entire wall. That was so cool. That's, that's the nature of sledgehammers. Sledgehammers destroy things, but you know what? They can also build things. I remember there was a time in which one of our oak trees in the very front yard was planted, I don't know why they did this, but they planted them very close to the sidewalks. Well, you can only imagine what those roots did to the sidewalks, right? So we had to flatten that. We actually had to destroy, with a sledgehammer, destroy sections of that sidewalk, and my dad redid it. But to do that, you've got to pound stakes into the ground and put them uh, two by, not, not two by fours, but two by sixes or whatever. Cole, what do you use? Or what have you Two by six. Okay, all right, and, and you, you, you use those stakes and you butt the, um, the, the planks up against them and nail them and you create a, a mold. So the sledgehammers were actually used for something good and we actually build, rebuilt that whole section. My dad makes his cement, you know, smoothed it out and everything and it was cool. We got to build something with those sledgehammers. I heard John Maxwell say this one time, or, or actually I read it, but he said, many people view, with a hammer in hand, they view every problem in their life as a nail and that every nail solution is a hammer and unfortunately even as Christians we think that the best way to solve problems is with force and we forget grace and we forget compassion and mercy but here's what happens we can use those things and and I'm now going to step out of the metaphor that I'm building here But the enemy wants to use sledgehammers and hammers to destroy. And he can even use us as the people of God in his church to do that. But God wants to use those tools to do something amazing and to build up. And we're going to look at a person in the scriptures. Actually, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Now, I'm going to read one verse before I jump into that chapter. You don't have to turn there, but Acts 8 3, I'm just going to run you because I've read it twice before. It says, But Paul, during the persecution, but Paul, excuse me, Saul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now, Acts 9, I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way through verse 19. Meanwhile, now, Meanwhile, because chapter 8 segues into Philip taking the gospel into Samaria, the very enemies of the Jews, and through this persecution, God actually builds his kingdom. That was the first thing that we actually looked at when we talked about this in our our series. Meanwhile, it says in verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found... <clears throat> Excuse me. so that if he found any who belonged to the way, now the way, talking about Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and so many, the, the Christians at this time, were called the way or followers of the way. If any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's going to Damascus. He's got letters from the priests and high priests, and he wants to go into those synagogues in Damascus find the christians and bring them to jerusalem to have them thrown into prison and we read later in chapters 22 and 26 where he gives us testimony that his intention was to have them killed that's why it's saying breathing out murderous threats saul was the greatest antagonist to christianity in his day well let's see what happens They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. They also saw the light. Chapter 26 says, saw God up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. By the way, do you see a horse or donkey in this story anywhere? Common misunderstanding that he fell off his horse in any anyway, uh, Scriptures don't say anything about a horse. So there he was on the road, falls down, and Jesus speaks to him. What an amazing conversion experience that he's in the process of having here. His life totally turning around. Verse 9, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul who is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Listen to this, church. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, the story goes on about how in the power of the Spirit, he began to evangelize in the synagogues reaching Jews. So here is someone whom Satan has been using to not just attack the church, but as we read in chapter 8, verse 3, destroy the church. The greatest antagonist against the church, Jesus, appears to him and completely, un, uh, complete, completely upends his life. Totally changes him. And we see this idea of redemption taking place. Now understand redemption is more than just the forgiveness of sins. That's where it all begins. It says that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into, or the dominion of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And from there, God is able to take that which the enemy has done to wreak havoc in our lives and Jesus' intention, as it was in your life when you first came to Christ, it is to take your life and completely turn it around to become something of praise and glory to God. And that's exactly what he does here for Paul, then called Saul. And he rescues him out of that darkness in which Saul truly thought that he was fighting for God. But he was destroying the very heartbeat, the very purpose of what God was doing on the earth and building his kingdom. Saul was attacking it. And I want us to see that though Saul was the greatest antagonist of the church. He then became the greatest protagonist of Jesus' kingdom. Now, what I want us to see here is not a hard and fast rule, that, this, that God does it this way all the time. Remember when um, Moses is standing before God on Mount Sinai, <clears throat> the people had just sent, they'd, <clears throat> they'd created an idol, worshipped it, and... and Moses is standing in the gap for the people. And it's that very same chapter in which, chapter 33, in which he wants to see the glory of God. In that context, Moses says, you have called me, Lord, to lead these people, but how can I lead them if I do not know your ways? What an interesting phrase. And I'm going to suggest to you that for us to follow Jesus, we need to not just know Jesus and know about him, but we need to discover his ways. That is, how does God generally work in, our, in people's lives? So to do that, we're going to see principles, and then we're going to see them worked out. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, that God is going to take every antagonist against the kingdom of God and save them and turn them around to become the greatest an- uh, protagonist for his kingdom. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but we do see it here, and I want to see a general principle as we go through some examples in the Old and New Testament, <clears throat> and then I want us to focus on this principle. It's not that God does this every time, but this is one of the ways in which God works. And I'm going to suggest to you that some of the situations that you're facing today, that the very heart of God is to do what we see here in your life. Okay? Here's the first example. We obviously, I I quoted from, or, or, or talked to you about Genesis 50, verse 20, in which this happened in Joseph's life. Do you remember Pharaoh? It's the first 12 chapters in Exodus. Pharaoh is challenged by Moses, who is God's spokesman, and Pharaoh is told, let my people go. Let let me take the people of Israel out to worship in the desert for three days, and what happens? We see that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. His heart is hardened almost a dozen times in the face of a clear miracle from God. Pharaoh is the greatest antagonist against the people of God at that time. So what does God do? I wish I could tell you that God saved Pharaoh. But that's not what happened. Actually, Pharaoh was destroyed. Actually, Pharaoh and his army were destroyed in the Red Sea. But here's what God did for his people. He allowed Pharaoh's heart to become harder and harder and harder with every miracle, with every plague, with every judgment that God brought upon Egypt. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and God permitted this because he, in his sovereign will, wanted to see this man's heart hardened simply so that he would have the opportunity to demonstrate his sovereignty and his power and his judgment, yes, upon the gods of Egypt, but his judgment upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. He needed to demonstrate that when you touch my anointed, you will reap the consequences. Pharaoh's heart was hardened over, over. his officials' hearts hardened over and over and over again so that God accomplished something absolutely amazing. Number one, God accomplished his deliverance of Israel in such an amazing way, it actually then prefigured the cross. And Jesus' very purpose for coming to this earth to redeem, to rescue mankind. It became a picture, and we actually went through a series talking about that and that word redemption and what that meant then, what it means for us now. So the second thing that he accomplished is that he showed all of Egypt that he alone is God. I mean, what an amazing testimony over and over and over again. Did you know this? I'm going to fast forward now about 1,500 years, 1,400. Fast forward. Did you realize that in the early church first, more second century, that northern Egypt, we would call it northern Egypt, became one of the main hubs of early Christianity. The God, I believe, had planted so many seeds and testimonies to his power and his love and his ability to rescue his people from the clutches of one of the most powerful empires on the earth at that time. And God reached into Egypt and he said, you will not have my firstborn son, Israel, anymore. And he rescued them. What an amazing picture then of the cross. And God said, "Mm -mm, not on my watch. You will not do this any longer. And so he took the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and he turned it around to bring such amazing good. Let me give you another example. Remember the city of Ai. Only a few thousand men to be able to fight against Israel. Israel is now going into the promised land. They're going to be conquering it. There's a certain campaign and strategy that God gives to Joshua that he begins to carry it out, carry out several campaigns. This first one is against Ai. Not going to go into all the story. That's where Achan sins, and you might remember that. He then says, okay, here's he actually gives Joshua a strategy, and here's what it is. Joshua tells his men, look, we're going to divide up into two armies, not, a huge, not huge armies. We're not going to tap into the, you know, the 600,000 armed soldiers that we've got, only a couple thousand. I'm going to have several thousand attack the front gates of Ai. The men are going to come out to fight against Israel. And then, guys... At my command, you're going to turn and you're going to run as if you are retreating. And you're going to run and they're going to chase you and you're going to draw them out of the city and saying to the group B, I'm going to have you guys set behind the city. Maybe it's beyond a hill, nobody could see it. But you're going to step, when they start chasing them, you're going to go into the city and you're going to burn it. You are going to bring judgment upon that city. Now, I'm not going to get into the details as far as why God needed to bring such drastic destruction on the cities in Canaan. I'm not going to go there, but I want you to understand this. There was something in Ai, the men in Ai, that wanted not just to defend them, but to blot out this, what they viewed as a scourge on the face of the earth, the people of God, Israel, and destroy them because they'd already won one battle, if you remember. Here's a second one. They're, gonna, they're going to flee, retreat. Now's our time. We're going to destroy them and therefore destroy their God. That's how the Canaanite would think. Not just destroy this army, but destroy their God. And God said, we'll see, we'll see. And he, he allowed them to be drawn out of the city of Ai, and then Israel ambushed them. See, this is, the, this is one of the ways in which God works. Satan plays into the very hand or the plan of God. And we step back and, and we're, we're like halfway through this drama in our life that's playing out and we think this is horrible. God, how can you allow this in my life? But you see, we're only halfway through. Maybe we're at the end of the first battle. You remember that first battle in which many Israelites died. And they had so many. They could have easily conquered Ai because something in Israel's camp, sin, God said, okay, I'm I'm not going to allow you guys to win. But I want us to see God had Israel ambushed these Canaanites. And and this is the very nature of how God deals with the kingdom of darkness. Many times, however, we just don't see that. We feel as if we're losing. We feel as if the kingdom of God is being destroyed. Maybe, Maybe that's where we feel that we are with regard to the new administration coming into America. And there's a lot of bad things that are happening, church. We just simply need to pray. Let's be careful what we say. Let's, let's pray, though, that God will change people's hearts because what God did throughout history, when there is attack against the church or an open to wickedness, God says, I am going to just draw them right in. Can I just share with you? I when, Back in the day when I could, and I was in you know, grade school, I loved to wrestle. That was actually one of my favorite sports. Here's something that you learn in wrestling. You want to, you need to be able to know how to use your balance, but you also need to know how to use your opponent's balance against him. So you use his momentum to play into your next wrestling move. Now, there was one particular move, and it's called an arm drag. And what you do, it, you may have seen wrestlers and they tie up and they you have one guy, you have the guy's neck and you have his elbow and he does the same to you. And so, but what you do is you then begin to push against him. And what, do, if you're being pushed against, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to push back. And so when he pushes back, his forward momentum goes this way. And that's when you step and you throw his arm over and you come around and you take him down. You're using his forward momentum with an arm drag and you pull him around and now you get two points. This, in essence, is what God does so many times. He uses the enemy. And truly, Satan is not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. His angels aren't. I'm certainly not. God alone is. And God, excuse me, Satan does not know the plan of God. See, this is why he was pulled into crucifying the son. So here, here's what I'm suggesting. God wants to take this for momentum. Satan truly thinking as if he's in control. Why did Jesus come? 1 John 3, 8. He says, I came, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And sometimes, church, those works are in our home. And if we're not careful, we can play into the plan of the enemy and open the door for him to allow a flood of evil into our homes. But God has a different plan. And I'm not going to suggest to you that every, you know, as, as if the way in which God has helped me, that's exactly how he's going to do it for you, but the principles will be the same. God is going to use this forward momentum of the enemy to work against him. Okay, now I'm going to get some application here in just a moment. <clears throat> Give me a moment. I need to find my place here. The last example I want, us to, I want to use. This is the most amazing example of what God does to use Satan's forward momentum to actually destroy him. Now, I mentioned that Satan is not omniscient. Can you only imagine the glee that Satan felt when he saw the Son of God hanging on the cross? Can you imagine what his his thoughts were? I I mean, we don't know, but I'm destroying the very Son of God. Maybe he did not know the full reason why Jesus came to the earth. Again, the scriptures don't, don't speak to this, but I can tell you this, Satan had a plan. Satan whispered into the ears of those accusers of Jesus, even Jews, not just the Romans, to have Jesus crucified. Satan had won. So he felt. But can I ask you, did Satan win? No. This is the greatest ambush, if you will, ever in the history of the world. Here is the greatest evil perpetrated against the kingdom of God, the crucifying of the Son of God. And yet, how does God turn this around? He turns it around around as the greatest good for the kingdom of God. That is the heart of God. This is the concept of redemption. So that he can take what the devil has used to bring destruction and bring so much good for the people of God can I just be honest with you right now? I grew up, and if you knew me, you would probably assess me this way. Mike Curtis is one of the most squirrely kids I have ever met. I I had been teased as a kid going through grade school. Uh, One of the reasons why I think we chose to homeschool our kids, (laughs) not quite so sure about what happens out there in the public schools these days, but People make choices, and, and my parents made a choice. My dad was a high school teacher, 12th grade English teacher, actually. So I, I went through the public school system. But in that process, kids just have this uncanny ability to find out what your weaknesses are, um, what they can pick out that can make you feel bad if they tease you. And man, did they f- they found a lot about me, <laughs> a lot. Um, I was an angry kid. I was constantly asked to go to the principal's office as a kid, got to know the principal by his first name. Okay, no I didn't either. But the truth is, I, I, I was constantly in fights on the playground. I was so insecure. There were so many rejections, so much teasing, so many hurts. I was responding to the world. I loved fighting. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I got into wrestling. But God had to change this squirrely heart. God had to change. I mean, here's the problem when you're insecure. Here's the problem when you try to find your security in other things rather than the very simple love that God has for us and the value he therefore places. upon. We look for our value elsewhere. I found it in sports. Just something that I would be good at. And I kind of propped up my image with that. See, this is who I really am. Now, the rejection that I felt, I reacted to. And guess what happened? Did it make it any better? Actually, I got rejected even more. And that is the nature of this. And God had to change me. So when I came to Christ over the next several years, God had to bring healing to my heart. And all of those hurts that now were very obvious symptoms, being overly competitive, feeling as if I had to be number one, feeling as if I had to be the one to get attention, pride, and, and just const, Just all of these anger, fights, this is what was in my heart. This is what was in the heart of this young man who had just come to Jesus and needed so desperately for God to redeem me and redeem all of this hurt, to somehow take all of this junk, and turn it around for good? And so I had some godly men speak into my life. That was hard. I had some friends speak into my life to touch on some of these symptoms. And so I can remember for an entire year, my 11th grade year, I I can just remember so many times kneeling before my bed and just desperately saying, God, I love you, but there is something so wrong in me, and I desperately need you to change me. I don't know why I respond the way I do in these situations, but I don't want to do that anymore, and I need you to heal my heart. I need you to change me. And God began this process, and it was hard, but step by step, slowly, slowly, one thing after the other, God began to bring that healing. He eventually called me into pastoring because God had done something in my heart in which he had healed me. And and to be honest with you, I am still in that process. I think all of us are. We're in that process of God continuing to redeem and educate and heal and renew, restore but God brought me through. He had to teach me so many principles from his word. I, be, I began to devour the Bible because in someone it says I, it says that those who, who do that will be like a tree planted by streams of water. I wanted to be like that tree. I knew I needed to be. And so God began to do this work in my life. And one of the hardest things that I ever allowed God to do. And and I'm I'm going to be honest with you, I cried a lot as God began to show and just peel back these layers and there was shame there. Wow. He, He brought things to my mind that I had done, things that I had said. Oh, every now and then I remember something from back in those days and it was like, oh, that really was me. I could share some with you, but I don't want to be embarrassed anymore, right? But the truth is the heart of God. He loved me so much. He said, Mike, I want to show you something. I'm, do you see all of this hurt? Yeah, how could I miss it, Lord? I, I want to take all of that. I want to heal it. And I want to give you something so that you might be able to share with others these very same principles I'm going to teach you. And not just teach you, but teach you and help you live these principles out. And you're going to need my grace. And that's what God began to do. And I'm sharing this with you because in your life, the enemy has attacked you and he has sought to destroy you. The very zeal that was in Saul that wreaked so much havoc, God needed to bring healing to his heart, turn his life around so that he would now be used to minister such grace, such truth to the people around him. You know, I've been amazed at how uh, many people are gifted with the ability to speak. But just about all of them realize that not only do they have this ability to speak, they also have the ability to speak wrong things. (laughs) Yep, there weren't too many amens on that one. But yeah, the, the truth is, w- with our words, Scripture says, we bring death and we bring life. Proverbs 10, verse 11, it says this. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Can I ask you this? And it's not just you extroverts that I'm speaking to right now. It's not just those of you who have what may some call the gift of gab who like to talk a lot, and you do a great job, but you kind of also go places you probably shouldn't. It's so easy for our words to bring death, isn't it? To hurt, to wound. Because of anger, because of some hurts in our heart, and we are reacting to those, and we speak hurtful words. Paul tells us in chapter Ephesians 4, uh, 29, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only, only, in other words, not just, you know, all, the, all of your speech should be this way, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And the Greek there means to give grace to those who listen interesting God wants to use your words to bring life not death So here's Paul I want you to go to Acts 9 verse 15 This is the prophetic word that Ananias was told to give to Saul whose name later changed to Paul But the Lord said to Ananias Go this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. If I were, the, if I were Paul, I would say to Anani- Ananias, I love that first part. Not quite so sure about the second part. Yeah, I'm not so sure I'm really looking forward to all that suffering, but I tell you what, 2 Corinthians 11, write that down. 2 Corinthians 11 is... Paul's laundry list of all the sufferings that he had gone through. We read about one shipwreck church. He went through four. When he wrote 2 Corinthians, he hadn't experienced the one in Acts 27, the shipwreck that he experienced. So he had three before that. Four shipwrecks, one of which he was in the open sea night and day. Wow. The degree to which Satan was actually at work in this, I don't know, but I tell you what, Satan realized who he had lost in his kingdom and wanted him back or wanted him destroyed. And you can just read through the stories in Acts and what Paul shares in his letters. He was just constantly attacked to take his life. Satan wanted him to destroy. But you know what? God says that Paul was his chosen instrument. I'm going to tell you this. When God called you, you became his chosen instrument. That word instrument is translated other places as vessel. So it's not just an instrument. Though I'm going to go with, with that to help us understand this before we close out. But you know what? God wants to take you that he has chosen, called before the foundations of the earth, Scripture says. And he wants to use you. And to use this squirrely kid, I can't tell you the depth of healing that God needed to bring to my life that didn't just take a handful of years. No, church, it did not. I am still being changed, and I need to be changed by the grace of God. But God has called you, and he wants to use you as his instrument. You know, it's, it's interesting. The very knife, that wounds becomes the knife in the surgeon's hand that heals. See, that's you. That was Saul. He was that knife that brought destruction that God turned around to minister healing. But that's you. That's me. He wants to take all of the crud and junk and the hurts and the wounds in your life and all of the shame And he wants to wash it in in the blood of his son. And he wants to transform you so that you speak words that bring life, not death. So that your actions bring about ministry and healing and building up. You're not the sledgehammer that destroys and knocks down that wall. You're now the sledgehammer that builds. Because a normal hammer just isn't weighty and strong enough. No matter how strong the wielder of that hammer is, he needs a sledgehammer to build. Do you believe that God can use you instead of destroying, bringing life and ministry and healing to people? The process is not always easy. But that's what we see here. The knife that wounds became the knife in the surgeon's hand that heals. I want you to turn very quickly to 2 Timothy, and I'm going to close out with this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read something very interesting from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy. It's probably around 66 or so AD. He's in a dungeon. He's not under house arrest this time like it was from 60 to 62 in Rome. He's now in Rome in a dungeon, and he is about to, within the year, lose his life. So these are his parting words to his closest spiritual son, Timothy. And this is what he communicates to him. In verse 20, chapter 2. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, that is, the ignoble, he will be an instrument. And it's the very same word that we read that Paul would become God's chosen instrument. It's the same word that's used here. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So here is my question. How does this happen? How do we become this instrument that God has chosen to bring about good and not destruction anymore? so that our words they stop wounding people and they start bringing life, ministry, healing. How does that happen? He tells us here. He cleanses himself. Your posture before God has got to be one of humility and surrender. It has to be. You have to stop being in control and allowing the spirit of God to change you. And to be honest, And and I know for me, and it just didn't happen when I was a teenager that that this happened, but throughout my life, I find myself kneeling beside my bed or just off by myself and just being really honest with God and saying, God, I have brought destruction and hurt, and I need you to do something in here. Change me. Change this so that I can be an instrument for noble purposes. I want to leave you with this. Do you want to be an instrument that God has chosen for noble purposes? Not so that you'll be able to do great things because many times those types of aspirations are so if we accomplish great things, we will think people will think we are great. In his kingdom, whatever that would look like and just say, you know what, God? Use me however you want. Break me, change me, speak to me. However hard the road is for Paul, I want him to know how much he must suffer for my kingdom. And do you realize that after that laundry list in Second Corinthians eleven of all of these hard things that he went through and the persecutions, he 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 says, "I prayed that God would take this from me." And God's this is what God said to him. Are you ready? My grace is enough for you. Wait, Hang on a second, God. I'm asking that you simply rescue me from all of these horrible situations and maybe I don't have to go through them anymore. He used the term, the thorn in the flesh, for this. And and God's response to him was Saul. After three times praying, I would have probably, after three times praying, if God spoke that to me, I probably would have prayed maybe four, five, or six times and, and just, but God, but God, but God. After three times, God just simply said, my grace is enough for you. See, when you're weak, that's when you'll see my grace. That's when my strength is made perfect in your life. That's exactly where God wants you. Do you want him to cleanse you? It's in that moment of surrender to him. In that sense of humility and honesty before God, that we recognize how very weak we are and yet how very strong he is. And I'm gonna promise you this, his grace will never fall short, ever. It will always be enough. No matter how deep that wound is, the healing power of the Spirit of God can go even there and minister healing. Do you believe that? Or have you given up? Because many Christians, they just shift into neutral. They're tired of trying so hard. And yet that's what the Christian life is about. It's about humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, just continue to cleanse me. I want to be your chosen instrument for noble purposes. Let's stand and let's pray that together, okay? Let's pray that God will do that in us, church, amen? So, Father, we come before you. And we're humbled And we realize, God, that that we too many times have been that instrument that's brought destruction. We're wearied, frustrated, and maybe some of us, we've just resigned and we've given up. Spirit of God, would you speak powerfully your truth of hope, of restoration. Your ways are above our ways, but your way is to redeem. Father, maybe we believe too many of the enemy's lies, and we need to start embracing these truths again. Now, as we do, I just ask you, Father, heal this heart. Let my words become a fountain that brings life. Let my actions minister always the love of Jesus. We just lift our hands offering this instrument to you, my life to you, God. Change it. Spirit of God, minister hope to my heart today. If I need to be reconciled with someone, a spouse, a child, a neighbor, a brother or sister in Christ, may that happen. But God, change me and make me that instrument for noble purposes. This is who you are. This is the very nature of God for you, Lord, to do this. And we're asking, do that, do that in my life, please. Cleanse it. Thank you, Lord. There is nothing that is too hard for you. None of us are beyond your reach of grace. Thank you for that. Minister healing, I pray. In Jesus' name.